Jeff, could you pray to open us up? Amen. Uh, there's a danger of me appearing intelligent and coordinated. Um, the fact that I'm going to cover um, the Lord's Supper on the day when we're taking the Lord's Supper, that is not my fault. I did not craft the structure of this in this way. That is uh, merely the Lord bringing timing together. So um, the main section we're going to be in is uh, Mark 14. Um, that was not of my choosing, but we'll get to that. Um, that is, again, more of the Lord's provision and just grace. Um, so for context, um, my plan was to go through the Passion Week in eight lessons and to do approximately um, one day of the week, um, kind of as we went along. So to rewind the triumphal entry of Jesus pre presenting himself as King and Messiah, that was the, the Monday of that week. The cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple happened on the Tuesday. The Wednesday was discovering the fig tree, the controversy with the religious leaders over Jesus' authority. We spent an additional day on the Wednesday um, because there's just incredible amount of, of activity that happened in that week. Um, the, the additional day was the parable of the two sons and the vineyard. Um, there's so much more that takes place. Um, there is an incredible rich depth of Jesus's wisdom and his patience and his forbearance as these various groups try to tag team and challenge and trip him up and we are going to skip past all of that um, so we're going to pick up again just after the passover and so i'm going to read from mark 14 verse 22 through 31 while they were eating he took some bread and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to them and said take it this is my body and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. In terms of momentous but kind of understated events in history, this quiet Passover, I think, is one of the most impressive ones because um, there's not the fanfare of the triumphal entry. It's just Jesus and a handful of people. This is something that because of what's taking place 
you would think that this is on top of a mountainside with thousands of people gathered around. This is how this event would happen. That's actually the cross itself takes place in that context. But this Passover is so just calm and peaceful, and it reminds me of the contrast of, like, the Lord is not in the violent rushing wind, but he's in that simple, quiet whisper. Um, Jesus is announcing a changing of the guard in this ceremony. The words Jesus uses, they're very, very specific. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And when he says blood of the covenant, that's a term that would call to mind Exodus 24. Um, hopefully it would call to mind Exodus 24. So the, the setting here is that Israel has been brought out of Egypt, out of their slavery. They're still in the wilderness. Um, they have not been brought into Canaan. So Canaan, as the promised land, it represents the promised rest to the children of God. And from Hebrews 4, we know that Jesus is that greater provision of rest. So there's this, there's this constant switching back and forth of a lesser and a greater image of everything that the Lord did, the provision that he was, the, um, the, the way that he spoke through Moses, which everyone in this, uh, around Jerusalem, they would revere that memory of, of uh, these incredible things that the Lord did. And yet that incredible activity is lesser than the person of, of Christ. And so in Exodus 20 through 23, um, the things that have happened there is the Ten Commandments have been given and read out along with ordinances, the sundry laws, um, the um, specifications about the Sabbath day rest, the Sabbath year, and the feasts. And after all of those things, that's where Moses, he's told all of this. Um, he's read these things aloud to the people. And we come to verse 3. It says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men to the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and he said, all the Lord has spoken, they, uh, sorry, and they said, all the Lord has, uh, I'm going to get there someday. <laughs> and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the people state and they go on record that they will commit to obedience. The people bring sacrifices with, um, with blood from the animals. They enter into a covenant, which is greater than a contract. I think we've I think we've, we've covered this, this definition, but it's, it's worth going over again. In a contract, if someone violates terms of the contract, the other people are released from that contract. But a covenant is a, is a commitment without regard. So if we have a contract, right, you want to have a vehicle of your choice, and I agree to 
to buy that vehicle if you come up with half the money, right? Well, in a covenant, it may be the similar thing. I agree to buy you a car of your choice, and then that's it, where your activity doesn't come into it. So if you insult me and spit on me while we're in the dealership, and you vow you are going to push this car off a cliff as soon as you get it, under a covenant, I pay for it, and I hand you the keys. This is the vow that Israel is entering into. Before Moses, Israel vows to obey. And it sounds wonderful because of everything that they've seen, the experiences that they have. But then we fast forward to Deuteronomy. And in chapter 31, verse 26, this is um, Joshua is being commissioned to take over because Moses is going to pass away soon. And it says, um, Take this book, the law, and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more than after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in the hearing, in their hearing, and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn away, uh, turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the works of your hands. That... Um, when it, when it says in verse 28 that Moses is calling the heavens and the earth to witness against them, that is the beginning of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, hear, O heaven um, and earth. He is basically echoing this, um, this statement from Moses saying, we know that you are going to disobey. And that beginning of Isaiah, which is titled the rebellion of Israel, is basically hearkening back, saying, we, we knew this would happen. So mankind's failure and inability is completely known to God. He does not stop them from entering into a covenant which he knows they cannot keep. But it is very much to expose the weakness that's already there. So that hopefully, in honesty, coming before the Lord, we would not be able to say, no, 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 I got this. I got this. Don't look over there. Don't look over there. Look at me. Don't, don't, don't look at what I've done. But being presented with a, a command to obey in our own flesh and in our own strength and our own ability, it is, it is only going to end in failure. Which is why Jesus instant, institutes a new covenant, saying this, is the co uh, the, saying this is my blood of the covenant, meaning it is his commitment. It is his commitment to us where he brings everything and he gives everything. Fast forwarding to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Wow. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, 
uh, of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled sanctify from the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place through the, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of one of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment that had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed by these. But the heavenly things themselves, which um, with better sacrifices than these, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Inasmuch as it was appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. This is such a, an important part also of this presentation. Um, the, the challenges that Jesus faced during that week prior where he is presenting himself as the Passover lamb without blemish and you have these repeated groups and people coming to him, trying to find a blemish or invent one or somehow project one, and they it will not stick because of who he is. It is an incredible, an incredible testimony to the very people who are actively trying to reject him, and they cannot make it work. And he does not reject himself, but continues to go forward. Um, lost my place. Yes, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Mark 14, verse uh, 26. After singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to go over this section again here. After singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. 
here there's this contrast of God's everlasting faithfulness and more importantly the reason why Jesus came to pay it all because mankind can claim to commit but we are insufficient and for anyone who is familiar with this section it's easy um, especially for me to mock Peter's deluded self-confidence to look at that and say I know how this is going to end and Jesus is saying it himself Jesus is saying it and you're like no I know better than you He's responding with so much misguided sincerity. And I think to Mark's credit, he writes down that it's not just Peter. Peter's specific quotes are in here, but Mark, who's there, says, and they all were saying the same thing also. So all of them in unison are saying, like, no, we will not deny you. The apostles' egos are writing checks that their bodies can't cash. And in a sense, I think they're in good company with us. Because if I had just finished having that kind of Passover with the promised king and Messiah, I'd be making outrageous claims too. To even if, even if they do not understand the full scope of what will happen, the, the implication and the power of his words, I think, would just be absolutely incredible to experience. But we know, we know what will happen. Verse 32, they came to a place named Gethsemane. Ironically, again, this is the Mount of Olives where the triumphal entry took place. Um, Jesus' triumphal entry took place from outside the city going in. And so the Mount of Olives is the place where the crowds were shouting Hosanna. And now he has returned to the same place that Garden of Gethsemane is at the base of the Mount of Olives. So he's returned here to a, a location where just days before they were praising him. They were excited about their king. He said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. This is Emmanuel speaking. It is God with us is grieved to where he wants some fishermen and a tax collector to support him in prayer during this time. And it's because Jesus knows full well the consequences of what we deserve. He knows that he will face those consequences on our behalf soon. And it is not that it is the cross, but it is the separation from the Lord that he will experience while he is on the cross. The, the, the horrific nature of crucifixion in a physical sense is, is eclipsed by the separation from his father that he will experience. Verse 35, and he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. 
and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now he was betraying him who had given them, uh, I'm sorry, now Judas, he was betraying Jesus, had given them a signal saying, whomever, who, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, again, Judas does not speak to him as Lord, but addresses him as teacher and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. So here the answer is, is, is that just as with John the Baptist, the religious leaders feared the crowd. Um, and that fear is in two parts. One, they feared that the crowd loved Jesus, and so they feared a loss of popularity. They feared a loss of influence. But the other part is that they feared the crowd because the crowd loved Jesus, and there was a risk of an uprising against Rome being triggered. And they had experienced what happens when Roman legions descend on Jerusalem. And they did not want to see any of that. They also did not want to risk, and this is so silly, they did not want to risk a kingdom where Jesus was the king and they would have to obey him. Judas Iscariot presented an opportunity of neutralizing Emmanuel with no crowd around. And it is again this, what, what Jesus speaks in the parable of the vineyard, um, of just the, the insanity in the words of the vine growers about how we will seize the son and we will kill him and the inheritance will become ours. That, that is what we see here, the, the confusion and the short-sightedness. And it is simply, it is the result of sin. It is the, the foolishness that comes with the pursuit of sin and evil. And the cure for it, as, as some of these people will receive later on after the resurrection, the, the cure for it is to receive Christ the Lord. Continuing in Mark, these last two verses here, 50 um, through 53. And they all left him and fled, just as he had said. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. This is the part where I didn't want to be in Mark for this. There are many other gospel accounts. Um, and I have to really just stop and give thanks here for the Lord, to the Lord for his faithfulness. I, I kept going back to Mark, and I couldn't figure out why. I didn't want to read Mark out loud because I, I didn't want to deal with the verse with the naked man. <laughs> I didn't understand why it was in there, and I didn't want to cover it because I didn't know how I was going to. I kept coming back to it, and for whatever reason, I'm reading it, and I'm rereading it, and I keep crashing into these verses, and I'm stuck. And 
It's just, I'm looking at it and I'm like, why is this itemized here? The other guys don't do this. Like, what is the, what is the point and the function? And so finally I was just sitting there staring at it. And like, again, the grace of the Lord, I was looking at it and, and I'm staring at it. And I'm like, why is it an unnamed young man? It, some of you already know where this is going. But it was brought to my mind that John, when he writes his gospel, he doesn't write down his own name. He doesn't say I or John. He doesn't identify him as that. But instead, he writes the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, anytime John is around, it's the disciple whom Jesus loved or the other disciple. Um, John was very careful to record that the other disciple is faster than Peter and that the other disciple got to the tomb first, which, like, yeah, I would, I would do that too, probably. Um, and it struck me that the young man following is Mark, that he is, he is giving an account of, of what he's up to here. And so then I sat there and I thought, well, why? Why does Mark do that? Like, this is scripture. This is recorded for all time that he's the naked man running away. This would be embarrassing to proclaim that you ran away from Jesus and you were completely nude when it took place. And I think this is, Mark is bearing witness to his own failure and weakness, that he was in the room. He was in the room when Jesus instituted the new covenant. And that experience was just prior to this, of him struggling to all extent that he could to get away from being arrested. He had had that same experience, but the experiences, they don't carry us. The experiences do not supersede our weakness. Their weakness is there. And when we see the Lord working, when we hear him, when he works through our lives, either personally us speaking to someone else or someone speaking to us, um, to recognize that absolutely is the Lord. But the change that takes place is not in our ability, that the weakness remains. And I think it's often that it's wonderful to read these accounts, right, of, of Peter, the reality of his denials, but then his redemption, his return to the Lord. But to appreciate that they were humble, that is an admirable, admirable quality. But to be humble is to be embarrassed. And when you are really, really embarrassed, it is not a fun feeling. It is not something that in that moment of having that emotional experience that you're like, yes, I want to live the rest of my life feeling like this. We don't. But it is a confrontation with the weakness that we have. And it's important, but it's important that we don't park there. And it's that we don't just grovel and complain about all that we can't do. And we just continue to sink further and further into ourselves. And we examine the lint in our own belly button forever. But it's that we recognize, yes, this is the weakness that I have. However, that is not the end of the story, that we move from there. We move away from our, the focus on ourselves, and we return it back to Christ. That from 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 9, Paul writes, he said, um, He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. Mark, Peter, and Paul, and all the apostles, they learned the reality of Jesus' life and that he redeems and restores us to the newness of life. But they learned it in the context of the, the weakness of mankind. It is not removed. It remains. And yet this weakness that we would say, I mean, I, I think many of us would be able to think about, you know, well, what does the rest of our life look like? And we would be able to say, you know, as long as the following things don't happen, then it'll be fine. Because I have lived with myself my whole life, and I have a pretty good idea of what pushes my buttons. And if too many of those buttons are pushed at the same time, well, that's just going to be terrible. Because who knows how foolishly I will respond. So we have a correct, and this is important, we have a correct understanding. We have a correct concern about our weakness. But how often is it that the Lord allows those circumstances that he can prevent? And the very thing that we fear comes to pass, and we find ourselves in the middle of that circumstance. And we can't figure out why we're not, why we're not completely undone because I know what I can contribute, and there's nothing here. So how is it that I can be in this circumstance and have peace? It's just plain not fair. How am I going to be able to predict things now? How will I know? And it is simply, it is the Lord being faithful. It is the Lord doing oftentimes more than we expect he can. And it's for me personally, the times where, where he provides supernaturally and externally, those are blessings and encouragements. But my soul is just absolutely humbled and crushed when there are times where, these are my weaknesses, when I'm sleepy, when I'm at low blood sugar because I haven't eaten. How old am I? When I just forget to go to the bathroom for hours on end because my mind is focused on other stuff. And so I'm in the middle of just these like, Really, like how, it's one of these like, are you an adult yet? <laughs> and then something happens and I'm at my weakest and I don't respond in anger and I respond in patience. And I stand there and I go, I don't think anyone else at this point is impressed with that moment. But for me, it speaks to me so much of the Lord's faithfulness that, that he would give me peace when I am at my weakest and I know it. And it's not something that between someone else, I can tell you like, oh, yeah, no, that was fine. It was just 110 degrees outside. That, that's nothing for me because I'm from Canada where it's not that hot at all all the time. But, you know, it's just natural grit. And, but before the Lord and the honesty of my own soul, I had nothing. I had less than nothing. I was ready to just lose it over. And it's usually really, really petty things. How dare you place this book where it should not be, right? The way that the Lord works, it is, it is a beautiful and incredible thing. And I want to keep reading here because this next section, it speaks to weakness and foolishness and pettiness and a, a determined will to see things done according to mankind's plan. And it's just apart from... Jesus is suffering in the middle of this. This is comedic. This section here, the religious trial, this is something that if you filmed it, you could set it to yakety sacks and you would laugh the entire time because of just how backwards all of this is. Verse 53. 
They led Jesus away to the high priest and to the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward, questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest says, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit on at him, to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and saying to him, Prophesy. And the officers received, um, and the officers received him with slaps in the face. It is, a, it is a kangaroo court that they are suspending their own created rules just to basically push this through. The way that they're performing this trial um, is illegal according to their own, according to the law, but then according to the own rules that they've tacked on to kind of bulk up the law. And they just cannot, this is, this is a Marx Brothers sketch where they're trying to get stuff done and they can't. They, they cannot get testimonies to line up. They can't get any of this to work. And I think a big part of this is what they're trying to do, again, in their own effort, they're trying to recreate some of the embarrassing circumstances that they had previously with Jesus, where they would try to catch him and they would try to trick him. And I think what it is that they're trying to accomplish is they're trying to have Jesus show disrespect before the high priest, because that's something else from the Old Testament, that that was something punishable by death. They're wanting to have a circumstance where Jesus answers truthfully in the power and the authority of God, but because his answer is not in a form of acceptable rabbinical structure and tradition, therefore it is disrespectful to these religious leaders, and therefore he is worthy of death. And Jesus knows all this. These are these moments between this and on the cross where they, they make these horrible statements, the, the, the wickedness of their words, but then also of their fists, where they say, prophesy, who has hit you? You know, save yourself. I, I remember when I was a student at the Hill, Matt Cole talking about how, how much to know who Jesus is to read that these things are taking place, how much it frustrated him that Jesus didn't just prove it that while he's blindfolded and he gets hit and just starts saying, this is your name, you grew up in this place, you don't like broccoli, you don't like broccoli, and just start enumerating every last thing to the actual, absolute condemnation to the individual who struck him, that while he's crucified, he has the ability to hop down and then hop back up again. And he doesn't. 
And it's this, it's this obedience to the Father because he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. It is, it is an absolutely incredible thing. And the, the embarrassment that, that Peter has, um, it's the same as with Mark, but I think we have much more detail here. Going from verse 66, as Peter was below, thank you, reminder. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch, and a rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. That, that brokenness, this, this revelation of, of weakness, this is something that we may not have experienced to this extent, but this is a truth for all of us. And yet, while this is, I mean, in preparing this, this is one of those things, you know, you, you, you prepare to speak about the Lord. And for me, it's always this thing about, Lord, don't take me through certain verses and teach those because I'm pretty sure you will come for my words. You're going to go and you're going to stand up there and you're going to teach about all of his provision, all his sufficiency. And then oftentimes I have to live through things where I have to prove that out, where I am insufficient and he is faithful. I want that provision and I want that faithfulness but I do not want to go through the part where my flesh is once again proved insufficient because I know it. I don't want to have to relearn it, but it is often very, very good for me to relearn that so that I don't take pride in myself, that I don't stand up here and say, I'm amazing. If you've been blessed, it is because I am amazing. No, I'm not. <laughs> it, the, the reality is, if you have Jesus, then I don't have anything that you need. I can't add to your life. I can't contribute. There is nothing missing. And, and that, is a, that is a blanket statement without having any clue of the depth of what all of your life has been, which would be unbelievably arrogant because I don't know what y'all have seen and gone through and lived through. Some of it is very little and some of it is a lot but it is simply based on who Christ is. The, the, the enormity of, of his life, of his provision, his passion for us, which is this here. In our own strength, none of us would go through this experience. Certainly not with the foreknowledge of what's coming after this. But when we, when we read from Hebrews that Let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It is the redemption of us that 
is the joy set before him. I don't feel like a joy oftentimes. But what an incredible thing to have the revelation of the heart of the Lord that I am able to go forward into a week with whatever problems there are, and I can truthfully itemize and enumerate my weaknesses. Lord, I don't know how these finances are going to work out. Lord, I have no idea how to finish building this fence. Lord, I don't, et cetera, et cetera, but you do. And to take those as opportunities to return back to Scripture in that frustration and seek out and to restate to the Lord stuff that he already knows, but I need to hear it again because I have the short-term memory of a goldfish, it seems like, on some days. And I need to state and recount the truth. You know the plans for me, that you have for me, Lord, plans for hope and for welfare and not for calamity. And Father, I want to receive them according to your timing, and I want to receive them according to your wisdom. And Father, I thank you for tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I do know you, and I know your heart. And so I want to say thank you now before I see what you're doing. I want to stand on the truth that you are faithful. You cannot do anything except be faithful. My entire life, my family, there is a whole bunch of success that I can point to, and it is not of my own doing. There is no way that I have brought all of these blessings to myself. You have. So with these struggles and these trials and these frustrations, thank you for what it is that you will do and how you will turn these things around for your glory. Any comments or, yeah. And, and that, is, that is an echo of how we've been created, that there is an innate knowledge of good that we have, but not the capacity to just, I'm going to go in good into this room, that there is not the ability apart from the Lord. But to also recognize that in those times when we are frustrated and grieved by our own incompetence, how in the world is it, why is that even grievous to us? And to, to recognize that the restoration and the life and the spirit that we've received is such that our transformation, even though I can't float around, and even though I still have three left hands when it comes to doing certain things, there is still a desire. And the reality that evil and sin grieves me, 
well, if I'm all that rotten and terrible, wouldn't it delight me? And yet there is a transformation that's taken, in, taken place in my heart where I cannot engage in sin and evil and enjoy it. It is the destruction to me that it is for all, but there is a greater awareness that I have. There is a speaker that I really enjoyed who um, um, would give the, the challenge to people, uh, the atheist challenge. Try to live one week anti-Christ. And he said, by the end of that week, I promise if you haven't killed yourself, somebody else will. Because evil and sin, does, it does not reward. It does not give life. The, the, the reality of who Christ is and what he has created us to, to participate in, we cannot get away from that. We can try to create lesser definitions of good so that we, we lower the bar so far that it's easy for me to step over. But it is not righteousness. It is not holiness. And the expectations that we have of delivering that degree of, of perfection, um, that cannot be removed. The, the demands of stewardship on us have not been lowered because we're incompetent. But we have a God who provides far more abundantly than we expect. And the confrontation of those impossibilities, and I think that's where it's very important for believers to understand that it is not difficult, because difficult is something that we do too often with these different coping mechanisms. But it is when we're faced with the impossible, and he makes the impossible happen in ways that either we all look at and are amazed by, or simply he does the impossible in one person's heart, and we're confronted with just the enormity of my response or my lack of response. That is, as we have the opportunity to go forward and take communion today, that is where we're able to give thanks because he has done it all. Father, we thank you so for your word. We thank you for your spirit and your provision. We thank you for your holiness and your wisdom and everything else, that you love us, that you died for us, that you live today and tomorrow, and that we will because you do. In Jesus' name, amen.